Uh, it is good to be together with God's people, and uh, we hope that you've had a great week. I'm excited because today we begin a new series uh, called Just Like Jesus, and we're thinking about taking parts of Jesus' life on earth. Obviously, he was perfect, so he sets for us the perfect example. Not that we have to be perfect, but we have the, the standard in his life for how to live. And and I think we're going to look at these principles and hopefully, as we, we think about these principles, they'll be useful to you and helpful to you and in your life, in your walk, especially if you're a Christian and you're following Christ, your goal is to be like him, to be molded into his image. Second Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, we all are being transformed into his image. And uh, that's is a wonderful picture. You have this the, the, the idea of the clay on the potter's wheel. It just starts out of this solid block of clay. And you don't know exactly what's, what it's going to be molded in shape. But as the wheel begins to turn and the clay begins to spin and the hands of the master begin to mold it and to shape it into what he wills. It's a beautiful picture for us as for us who follow Christ that we are on the potter's wheel. We are in the potter's house and that he is working on us and molding us and shaping us to be like Jesus, to live as Jesus did. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 5 and following says, If anyone obeys his word, his love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. I catch this. This is how we know we are in him. This is verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him. Uh, yeah, that's a good time for a poll question. How many of this morning would you say you, you attempt, maybe not that you always achieve it, but that you attempt to live like Jesus? Okay. The scripture is clear and all hands should have gone up. Whoever claims to live as Jesus, this is the end of verse 6, must walk as he did, must live as he lived. So the series is looking at Jesus' life as the standard, as the mold for our lives and how to shape our lives after him. So I have a question for you this morning. How many of you know any adult babies? Any adult babies? Do you know any adult babies? Maybe maybe I should clarify exactly what an adult baby is, because you've probably known a few, but let me give you six little helpers here. Uh, one, an adult baby is somebody that it's all about them. Every story gets back to them. Uh, one comedian called this the me monsters. Me, 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 me. I, 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 I. I mean, every story eventually gets back to them. And even when they want to talk about you, they'll say something like, well, enough about you. How do you feel about me? Second is a ba- uh, adult babies take everything Personally, everything, they've got a chip on their shoulder. Everything that everybody does always is related. Every conversation that every other person is having must surely be about them. Uh, you might say their pampers are often in a bunch. Number three, they always have the answer. They are the smartest person in the room. And if you don't think so, you just ask them for their opinion on anything. Uh, they love to babble on and on and on and on about any, every matter under the sun. Number four, what they want matters most. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Uh, they have 
the wisest answer. Their opinions, their wishes, their desires are number one on the list. And they'll usually cry until they get it. Number four. Um, what they, I'm sorry, number five, what they, it's, it's always someone else's fault. Uh, that was probably who, A.V. Bor's fault right there. No, I'm just making a point there. It's always someone else's fault. They love the blame game. No matter what the situation, if something went wrong, it wasn't their fault. It was, it was this person out of them, it was this person that making excuses. They're always making excuses for themselves. They can't ever take responsibility. They only expect other people to apologize or to change, but never themselves, because they're always in the right. Number six, they're often fussy. You know the little baby with the, the lip is kind of just quivering, you, and you know it's coming. They're getting ready to, to just really have a big fit. These, these are the way adult babies are, too. They're often critical, often negative, more critical than grateful, and temper tantrums abound. You may have a person in mind right now. Maybe an elbow has flown. Uh, perhaps you have a picture in mind of an adult baby that's prettier than the one I have on the PowerPoint. Uh, maybe you'll see this person tomorrow and you'll be tempted to say, hey, our preacher was talking about you yesterday. <laughs> Don't do that. We have a podcast and a Vimeo channel and they might catch it. Maybe you're thinking as I list these qualities, boy, I hope Insert name here. Here's this sermon. Uh, maybe you pass that uh, podcast link on to them. And you just do it through an anonymous email. And then maybe you're just hoping that they're paying attention. You see them this morning. You're like, man, I hope that person really is listening in. So let me take another poll. How many of you, based on the descriptors above, would say that you know an adult baby in your life? Okay. A few people. Uh, poll question number two. How many of you would consider yourself the adult baby? Oh, a few honest folks. Good job. The, the crazy thing is this. You know, the, everyone knows an adult baby, but far fewer people think it's actually them. But let me blow your mind for just a second. Did you realize that it's possible? That as I describe those characteristics of an adult baby, that someone was thinking of you. What? My mother loves me. Maybe we should make an honest confession. And I appreciate those of you who beat us to the punch. The honest confession is this. We've all been adult babies. We've all been like that. We're grown up, we're, we're technically adults, we're in adult bodies doing adult things, but acting very childish in our behavior. What causes this? Why do we act like this? And, and maybe the follow-up to that is, why do we so rarely see it in ourselves? Why are we so quick to see it in other people before we see it in ourselves? The answer is very simple. One word, pride. We are so prideful, all of us, the, the preacher, the elders, the deacons, the ministry leaders, all of us are so prideful. It's, it's hardly beyond our escape. How did that happen? Well, think about it. For the first, more or less, the first two years of your life, some children advance more than others, but you, in that time, were a mere baby. 
maybe this size, maybe about that size. I don't know, but for the first couple of years of your life, at a very small size, you exerted complete and total control over at least two people in your life. What you needed was of first importance. It all revolved around you. When you were hungry, they came to feed you. When you needed changing, they came to change you. When you needed dressing, they came to dress you. It was all about you. Uh, you may not know this, but growing out of this kind of power proves to be very difficult. Because you spend the next amount of your life past that first two years trying to unlearn this lesson that it's all about you. Because it's the wrong lesson. I mean, I realize we've got to take care of babies and young children. But, but babies don't care one lick about anyone else. Babies are being relatively good this morning. Sometimes. Sometimes we'll get an infant or a, a young child and they're screaming and just giving their parents all kinds of fits. They're interrupting a sermon that I have worked on and slaved over and edited. They don't care. They're interrupting other people's worship. They don't care. They're making it inconvenient for their parents who are just thinking, when will we ever get to sit through an entire worship service again? I promise it'll happen. But your children, they don't care at that age, right? Because they're babies. Because they're immature. And we, we sort of expect them to not have that understanding. That's okay when they're little. What's not okay is for folks who don't grow out of it. And the reason we don't grow out of it is because of pride. We hold on to ourselves. It's so hard to unlearn your selfishness that's been ingrained in you. And even when you get to a point when you think, I'm not prideful. I mean, even you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, none of that applies to me. I, I really am a most humble person, wouldn't I say? I, I sure hope he mentions my name this morning as, as an example of humility. As clearly I surpass everyone else. See, you can't get out of it. I mean, pride's one of those things that you're always, always, always fighting with and struggling against. It's the root cause of so many sins, and yet you struggle to get away from it, to get out of it. Think about this. Google Earth, such an amazing tool. It is, it is unbelievable. Could you think, man, telling your forefathers uh, from a hundred years ago that someday you'd be able to sit from the comfort of a single space and just using your fingers transport yourself to anywhere around the globe with this tool. You can view anywhere on earth. Anywhere on earth with just a few clicks. Samantha Corcoran has used this tool in the children's Bible classes. You can go anywhere. You can go to the Great Pyramids. You can go to the Bible Lands. You can go to the Grand Canyon. You could visit Niagara Falls. All from the comfort of your computer screen. But that's not where you go, is it? I mean, if you've ever used Google Earth, the very first time you had this picture of Google Earth and you had that search bar up there and like, of all the places I could go, where should I go? What'd you type in? My house. I want to see what I look like. I want to see what it looks like where I live. Don't, in theory, I think you know what your house looks like, but that's what you want to look like, right? That's what you want to look at. Because pride is rooted. There's a self-centeredness to our nature 
that even when we try to address it, it's so very hard to get away from. As we think about being just like Jesus, we've got to deal with pride. And there is only one cure for our pride. And it doesn't come from within yourself. Jesus is the only cure for your pride. If you think about it from a scriptural perspective, Jesus is the center of all things. All things revolve around him. If you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15 and following, uh, that's page 1260, if you don't know where Colossians is. Colossians chapter 15 or page 1260 in the Pew Bible. And by the way, I didn't mention it this morning, but if you're a guest here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, or uh, we, we'd love for you to take that as our gift. Uh, you're welcome to have that and use that, and we hope that you'll return. We hope that you'll make it a practice of reading and studying God's Word. And if you're a member and you're thinking of somebody who might need to know about Jesus and you'd like to share that with him, you're welcome to take one as well to use it as a conversation starter or to begin a Bible study with him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following, page 1260. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Maybe when you were growing up, your parents used the phrase, do you think that the world revolves around you? Jesus could have answered that, yes, it does, because it does. The scripture is quite clear that the whole purpose of life, that the centerpiece of all creation, that the whole point of the whole story is Jesus. He's the center of it all. And so to to, to take the focus off ourselves, we've got to draw closer to him. And particularly because of his example. If you think about Jesus' holy humility, turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. The scripture that was read for you, but now I'd like you to read it for yourself. Page 1257 in the Pew Bible tells us, as we read in Colossians, that he's the center of it all. He's deserving of everything we've given him this morning. Our praise, our adoration, our worship, and yet... Philippians 2 says he stepped out of heaven and set all that aside. He stepped out of heaven's majesty and became a part of the human mess. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very nature, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he became, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What an amazing, 
mind-blowing thought that the centerpiece of heaven, that the centerpiece of all creation laid all of that aside and down so that he might step into our world, take on human form, which is far lower than holy form, not to be worshipped, not to be crowned as king, but to live a common, ordinary, unremarkable kind of life. A life that was in every way humble. The prophet Isaiah says there was nothing in his appearance that we should be drawn to him. He was like a root out of dry ground. In fact, he goes on to say that he was a man familiar with suffering. If you had walked by Jesus in the first century and you did not know the miracles that he did and you did not understand the teachings that he taught, I'm convinced that you wouldn't have paid Jesus a single notice. He was that humble. And yet here he was, the centerpiece of the centerpiece of all creation, the center of the stars, the one who formed the universe by his word. And he's walking and talking in our world. He's healing people and doing good. It's a mind-blowing thought. But not just that he humbled himself in his life, but that he humbled himself in his death. Think for just a moment about your death. I know it's a morbid thought, but, but think. Think what kind of plans you've made, what kind of arrangements you've made so that you have a memorial or a funeral service. Maybe you'll have it here at the church or maybe it'll be somewhere else, but you make sort of a plan in your mind. You do not make a plan for a death like Jesus died. It was a criminal's death. It was humiliating. Obviously, it was painful physically, but that wasn't the worst of it. It was that there was a first time in all creation, in all eternity, that the son was separated from the father. He not only lived a humble life, he lived, he absolutely went through a humiliating death. When we focus on Jesus, it caused us to come out of ourselves just a little bit. His entrance was obscure. His life was humble. His death was humiliating. A man by the name of James Allen Francis wrote these words, and I thought it put it together well. He was born in an obscure village, the child of poor peasants. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. For three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompanied greatness. He had no credentials. But himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mock, a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. After he died, he was laid in a borrowed grave. From the pity of a friend. One life, when we focus on Jesus, we begin to come out of ourselves. Considering all that Jesus laid down and all the ways in which he humbled himself, may we then listen to the call that Jesus makes. He calls us to humility. He calls us to do the very same thing that he did, but he did it to a far greater degree than you and I will ever be able to do. Scripture is clear that God takes our pride, 
quite seriously. It is truly something he hates. Luke chapter 14, verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In short, when you look through the pages of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New, it is one simple message. Be humble, or you will be humbled. Our lives are called, as we follow Jesus, to humility. Jesus, as we said, is living humility. He humbled himself in the flesh. He lived humbly. He died humbly. He laid himself down so that we might be, might have the hope of being raised up. It's a powerful calling. It's not an easy calling. Humility, by the way, is not an optional thing for Jesus' followers. It's not a thing that you can leave here today and, well, eh, you know, that was an okay sermon, and I didn't really like the, I don't really like being humbled. And I know a few adult babies, obviously. I'm going to let them know that they need to hear the sermon, but it's really not for me. That's, that's not, that's not the point. It's not something you can lay aside. You have to learn to lay down yourself as Jesus laid down himself. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, if you're following along. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Our, our world is full of it's all about me. Downright to the selfie. It's all centered around me and what I want and what my life's plans are. And and it's all about how many followers I have and how many likes I get and how many blog page posts I get. It's all about building your platform. And Jesus runs away from that. He says, listen, if you want to follow me, it's about denying yourself completely, entirely, taking up my your cross and following me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's absolutely true. When you follow Jesus, when you begin by being immersed into the water, by being buried, Romans chapter 6 tells us that what's happening there is a picture, not just of what Jesus did, but what's happening into you. If somebody responds to the invitation today, or when you've seen somebody respond to the gospel invitation, and they go into the waters of baptism, what you're seeing there is a death, a burial, and a resurrection, a death to self once and for all and forever being raised to walk as Jesus walked. It's not a it's not an optional thing, so how do we do it? The cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, put it succinctly. Eight simple words from John chapter 3, and they go like this. He must become greater, and I must become less. The, the, the first understanding of that is he is greater than I. God is greater than I. And Jesus, of course, set this greatest example 
in the garden right before he was crucified. He knew this was the plan. He knew this was coming. This was all his whole purpose from the moment he entered into our world was to die for us. And yet when it came right down to it, the night before he came to the cross, as he prayed in the garden, he said, God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. In, in our vernacular, it's, please, God, no. In anything but this. If there's any other way to get around it, I know what's coming. I know the physical pain. I know the mockery. I know all these guys who are supposed to be praying with me who are now asleep are going to leave me. If there's any other way, God, please. But what does it come back to? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist understood he must become greater. I must become less. He understood that because Jesus understood that because Jesus lived that. Jesus wasn't this just about that for himself. Remember Philippians 2. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took the nature of a servant. He came to do the father's will. Think for a second for just a minute. If you leave today. And you get in the car and you start talking about church and the ministry fair and and you're tempted to say, you know, I just didn't get much out of worship today. I mean, the, the songs aren't really my style. Uh, the message, I don't like that whole humility stuff. And think of the audacity of saying, I didn't get much out of worship today. Well, that's OK. Because we're not here worshiping you. We're not here worshiping the preacher. We're here with our focus on him, on his word, on his principles, on his promises, and on his precepts. So we have to keep that mind that Christ had. His will surpasses our will. But hold on, it gets harder. Because with Jesus, it's not just about the Father being greater than him. He humbled himself even amongst other people. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to go back there. You realize that we were already there once. Philippians chapter 2. But this time, we're going to read the first four verses of the chapter. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others. Oh, this is a hard one. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in a congregation of Christ-following people, when we come together to worship, we realize our focus is not about pleasing us. It's about pleasing Him. And we consider the needs of everyone else, the other 699 people in the room, as greater than ours. And when you do that, then you begin to have the, the mind of Christ. Then we begin to see Himself in us. So let's get practical. When we value others above ourselves, it looks like something. We do what benefits others instead of what pleases us. 
You can show mercy even to those who are undeserving of mercy. You can pray for those who persecute you because you consider them greater than you. Because you consider them made in God's image. You can let go of hatred, animosity, envy, and jealousy. Even when you feel it's just, you can let it go because Jesus did. You can keep your word even when it costs you something greatly. You can go the second mile even when those people you're with barely deserve your first. You can go the second mile. You can love your harshest of enemies and pray for them. You see, all of those things that we think are hard are hard because of our pride. And when we begin to sacrifice pride, when we begin to nail that pride to the cross and reject ourselves and put the will of God and the needs of others ahead of myself, humility begins to take hold. Humility, C.S. Lewis said, is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. We put those others ahead of us, and we put everyone else ahead, including Christ himself. So the lesson this week is to humble yourself. If you want to be just like Jesus, you've got to take on humility. So let me get practical and step all over your toes. Let's get to the real practical. I want you to do two things this week. Number one, I want you to practice some personal Humility. Babies don't care about anyone else but themselves. And that's fine for babies, but that's not fine for us. If you want to grow in Christ, you've got to learn to put others' needs first. And there are big ways to do this in small ways. Holding open the door. Going last in line. When you scroll down on Facebook and you see that perfect family and they do that perfect thing and their life is so perfect and you just are really happy for them, aren't you? Instead of just scrolling, why don't you hit a like? Why don't you deflate your own pride and be happy for someone else instead of jealous over another? Instead of coming to a conversation with all the stuff that you want to talk about you, try to listen more than you talk. When something goes well, try not taking the credit. Try taking direction. When you go to work tomorrow, let somebody who knows all about how you should do your job tell you how to do your job. And nod and smile and remember There were lots of people who told Jesus how to do his job. Maybe you should do the dirty job. You know, there's that thing at work that we reserve for the new people. At cleaning out the closet or doing the, doing the, whatever the job is. Maybe you should do that. Oh, I know it's not your job. You've been there 10 years and, and how dare anyone would even ask. Don't even make them ask. Just go and do it. Humble yourself. It's good for you. Try doing what's right instead of being right. Confess your weakness to someone else. Lift someone else up and try not to get the credit. 
we have to learn to not put ourselves in a baby's position. All right, number two, and this is even harder. You've got to repent of your pride. I don't mean repent of someone else's pride, because probably while you've been listening to this message, you've been hoping that someone else would repent. I'm not talking to someone else. I'm not talking to the adult babies. Well, I am, (laughs) but it's not the one you're thinking of. I want you to go to a family member who you wronged. I want you to talk to a spouse who you were unkind or rash. I want you to go to a coworker or a boss. Yeah, I know they're adult babies too. Yeah, I know you've got all your reasons for not doing this. But, but I want you to say, I'm sorry because I've been proud when I, and then you fill in the rest. No buts afterward. No defensive posture. No explaining away. Just simply repent. Now, right now, during the message, you're just like, man, this is going to be a great week. Some people are going to be apologizing to me. That's not. You're missing the point. Pull the pacifier out of your mouth for just a second. Okay? You. Repent of your pride. You make the apology. You make things right. You don't understand. You don't. don't, No, no. Stop. Humility is what Jesus calls us to. And that begins with you. Begins with the person that you look in the mirror at each day. And if you can get that guy or that girl under control, great things can happen. But it takes Jesus to make that happen. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, I want to invite you to humble yourself before him today. I want you to confess him as Lord because he is. I want you to turn away from sin because that's the opposite of what Jesus wants. I want you to obey, to be buried with, to crucify yourself in the waters of baptism and be raised to walk in newness of life because he's called you to that. I want you to begin to live life on his terms instead of your terms. Jesus laid himself down so that you and I might have the hope of being lifted up. And we'll finish with this. Philippians 2 says that one day you and I will humble ourselves before Christ. Okay? You, you, it's going to happen. Okay? Your knee will bend at the name of Jesus. The, the question of when that happens is up to you. You can do it now of your own will, or you can do it in eternity of someone else's will. But your knee will bow. Your tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. If you do it now, you can find salvation. You can have heaven. You can have hope. You can have his grace. But if you wait till till that day, then it's far too late. Every knee will bow. This morning, if your knee needs to bow... If your tongue needs to confess, please come together as we stand and sing.